care of that. Okay, so obviously we're in the plagues, and we're in Exodus, and we're doing this um, for the summer. And so let's recap our narrative for just a moment as we go through this. And I'm going to be borrowing largely here from the Bible Project some, um, which is one of the big reasons why we are doing this series to begin with, and we'll get into some of that more in a second. But um, if you haven't checked it out, they have a new app that they launched at the start of this year uh, that is amazing, and it is seminary-level quality education and information that you are receiving for free, and they're just reading through the Bible. They're going to take, like I think, three years just to go through, I think it's one year to go through the Torah. They've got like a three- or four-year plan to go through the Old Testament, and then they're going to get the New Testament. But it's tracking these movements and scenes and like themes through all Scripture. It's great. And if you are familiar with the Bible Project, I don't need to keep talking about this. It compiles it all in one place. I'm wasting my time. So anyways, they got these movements, though, in Exodus. And they're really, really helpful. Break up Exodus into three movements. And we're coming to the end of, uh, close to the end of the first one. Kyle will finish it next week. Because we're actually going to break the plagues up uh, into, I'm going to kind of cover nine today. And Kyle's going to cover Passover next week. And more information on why we did that in just a second. So here we are. We're finishing up kind of this first movement. This first movement of Exodus is the people of Israel actually exiting from Egypt. And so that's the main point. But in this, the theological theme or kind of thrust that is happening that we're seeing take place is the naming of Yahweh. So if you're, you don't maybe realize this, I, I hadn't really thought about this until diving into all the Exodus commentaries. The name of Yahweh is never mentioned in Genesis. All we have in Genesis for who God is, is Elohim. And so it's not until we get to Exodus that we actually begin to see God's name come to the surface, or Yahweh as we know him throughout the Hebrew scriptures. So this is a new thing. And so up until this point, it's kind of, it's not an unknown or unnamed deity completely, uh, not like what Paul's talking about uh, at the Aragopagus in, in Greece. But it is this thing where the people of Israel aren't a people in the way that they are going to become. And so this Exodus story becomes formation uh, or formative and foundational in the story of the people of God. And so he's getting his name. And so this movement as they exit out of Egypt is all about God's name, Yahweh's name, being known and given to the world. And it's interesting here because even as we move to the plagues, it's not just... So, so there's these signs and wonders at the beginning so that the Israelites might know the name of God. And right away in the heartbeat in the story of Scripture, what you see is that God's intention, though he is forming and shaping and calling out a people, simultaneously tied to that is always that the nations in the world would know the name of God as well. It is always God's heartbeat and his character that all would know. And so this is happening in Egypt. And this is specifically happening in the plagues. So this is the first time in the plagues that we start to see this, that it would be so that even the Egyptians and that Pharaoh would know the name of God. So there's this movement. We know the story that's happening. Most, we're introduced early on to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a generic name for the king and ruler of Egypt. Uh, we don't know for sure which Pharaoh we're dealing with here specifically. We've got good historical ideas. But we know that this Pharaoh that is ruling over Egypt no longer is uh, seeing the Jews as beneficial to his kingdom, his power, his reign. And so the Jewish people under Joseph come, and they are fruitful, and they multiply in Egypt. It's language that you should, your ears should go, oh wait, I know fruitful and multiply language. 
So there's this language of early on in uh, the Exodus that they come, that they multiply, that they, they are what they are supposed to become. And the Pharaoh that no longer knows or remembers Joseph and his goodness and what he did for the people of Egypt, he doesn't exist anymore. And so the new Pharaoh says, hey, these people are getting too strong. There's too many of them. We've got to cut them down. We can't have this. We have to control them. Because the relationship between the empire and the oppressed or, or those that are a part of it, are, it's only a relationship that they want to cultivate as long as it benefits them. As soon as the empire is threatened or those that are in power are threatened by those that they are over, they will then use their strength and their resources over and against those oppressed people. This is true of all of humanity. It's true of us in our lives. We understand this. And we've experienced this or unfortunately sometimes have been the ones that have implemented this. We know how this works. So Pharaoh says, you got to go. So the people of God uh, begin to do this thing where they are going to exit out of Egypt. And we're introduced to Moses and Pharaoh through the, the uh, Moses and the Nile River, the basket, Moses' basket, he is put down the river because Pharaoh's trying to kill all the babies and the firstborn because he's heard that there's somebody that's supposed to supplant him, all this. We know this image, it's repeated later in Jesus. And so this is that. So Moses gets raised up, he's raised amongst the Egyptians, we've covered the story, and now the moment has come where Moses is stepping into the calling and the commissioning that Yahweh has placed on him, and he's going to take the people out of Egypt. And so what's happening here is that in this, there's this thing where like seven times in the plagues, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the narrative, it will be repeated that God's name will be known, that you will know my name, that the Egyptians will know my name, that Yahweh's name will be known. And so this is kind of the climactic moment of this thing where God's name is being revealed both to the nations and to his people. And so this is repeated seven times. Again, you should have little antenna that start to tingle when you hear seven. If something's mentioned seven times in the Hebrew scriptures, it's probably really important. And so this is going to climax or, or come to fruition in this, that God's name is being revealed in this moment and in this act. And I want to say here for a moment why I think this is really important and why it matters so that I'm not just giving you information and facts, right? The exodus for God's people serves as a sense of meta-narrative. If that's an unfamiliar word for you, what it is, is, is that it is a large story or like this idea that there's this bigger thing than all of us. And it is serving as a way for them to be reminded and to hold on to this bigger story that their life is just one small part that is being brought into this sweeping narrative, this historical uh, understanding and ability to view scripture and the, or, or to view the world and life in the, this direction that they're going. And so the exodus for the people of God in the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures is this like grounding moment in the meta narrative of how they understand the world and who God is. It's allowing them to understand and see and to know that God is a God that acts in place and time, that involves himself into the history and into the mess of humanity. He enters in and he gets connected to this all. And so it reminds them that when they're in a certain place and a time, that they are connected to a God that is constantly entering into his created order and that they are connected and that they are a part of this. 
this matters even more so because the exodus that we have in our Bibles, we understand through scholarship and all this, and there's different disagreements, and if you want to talk about how Scripture is formed, Kyle and I would love to have those debates, but we don't need to go into that now or those conversations that are not even debates. But what we uh, will all agree on, conservative, liberal, everybody in between, is that the Exodus narrative, as it is constructed here in your Bibles, we find its completion of this structure sometime around the 5th or 6th century B.C. This would be when the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. And so why this matters and why this is connected is because what they're writing this, why they put this story in their scriptures and why they go back to it, and it's so foundational and so important, is because they're an oppressed and captive people. And they're beginning to form some worship. Because in Babylon, they, they've already been a nation and they have structures and they have practices. But there's this liturgical element that they're allowed to continue to practice. They're allowed to continue to kind of be Jewish in Babylon in their own ways. And they want to come back again and again to this story, to this moment where they're saying the God that we serve is a God that will enter into time and space and give freedom to the oppressed and to the captive. That God will not sit idly by and watch evil just sort of build and build and build and build. And they return to it and they worship and it forms and it shapes and it roots them in who they are and all that they want to do. So as Exodus was completed in this space, and so that helps us kind of see how it applies to us today. Why we get to these plagues and why it matters and why we should continue to allow it to shape us and form us beyond just good information and beyond sort of just using it as a, a spiritual kind of representation or uh, metaphor, if you will, of like our own lives. And as we discuss the plagues, what we're meant to see is that this is a God that acts in time and space. This is a God that sees the oppressed and the captive and the marginalized and those that are under the abuse of the empire and those that are under the abuse of the ones that hold the power and the wealth and all the resources and says, I will not sit idly by and watch that continue to take place. Our God is a God that cares about this and will not let this happen. He intends to make it so that they all will find freedom. He wants people to experience freedom. What the Exodus for the Old what the New Testament, or as the New Testament church and people, is what the cross is for us. And it's important that we find ourselves a narrative that we can return to and hold on to and see the world through and understand and participate in and understand there's a journey that we're kind of traveling along and being a part of and that there's a role that we have to play. Now, just because the cross is our crowning point or meta narrative does not mean that it replaces the Exodus. It continues the meta narrative of the Exodus. When we begin to follow Jesus, what happens is just as it is in marriage, the history of God's people, when you step into and become a part of that group, that history from the Exodus till now becomes a part of your history. That is now your story. That is now the God that you serve and all that has been revealed about him is true to you today. And so if the Exodus story is true for all of God's people and the cross serves as something even like beyond that, a fulfillment of it, then what we know is that the cross is beyond mere salvation for us. 
that the cross represents a moment where God enters into space and time then and wants to enter into space and time now and move you on to something else. For the Egyptians, that has geopolitical implications. For us, we, we realize that that's not necessarily the case. But it does have direct implication to your life and to your materialness and the way you understand power and the way you understand structure and the way you understand resources. God is calling you to be moved out of something in and around you and not just a mere spiritual or mental ascent of belief. That's the narrative we are a part of, and that's the narrative as the church we have to continue to be a part of. So that means then what we do here as we gather together, whether it's on Sunday mornings or it's a small group or it's on a field day, when we gather as God's people, it has to become something more than us just being a group of friends that share some common belief and interest and ideologies. The scriptures and the, the thrust of the people of God is saying, no, 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 no. You as a people have to have an impact in the space and time around you. And that is how God's name becomes known. No one becomes a believer or is converted or begins to transition their allegiance from one God to another, whatever that God may be for them, simply by understanding history. You understand it by seeing who God is and being moved and compelled by that God and understanding that that God intends to meet you here and now and to do things that changes the life for you and for those around you. And so the church has to do that. We have to be compelled to be engaged and connected in such a way that we too would be moved by God and understand that we are a part of this narrative where the weak, the oppressed, the marginalized are being brought into freedom and that we ourselves are being brought into freedom out from under the oppression of sin and bondage of what we are sort of swimming in. Because the reality of it is is that we live in the empire. And so there's a connection here. America is not the chosen land. America is the empire. And we are living in it. And so we all, in some sense, are in a need to step out under the oppression of the empire and to experience the freedom of Jesus. And we need to know that that is the call of all of us. And so we begin to examine our ways and our understandings of how that is so. How we still live into the bondage and the oppressions like the Israelites. How the oppression of the empire and the, and the forces of power around us and how we become so comfortable just as the Israelites did with what the power and the privilege of the empire provided to them that we forget our identity and who we are as God's people. Just like it took a little bit of arm twisting to get Pharaoh to let the people go, it took some and we'll see that it takes a lot more once they get out into the desert, some arm twisting to convince most of the Israelites that this was the right thing to do. That to go and create a new society and a new culture was the right thing to do. And so what we see here in the plagues is this moment where there is a convincing. There's an establishment that you have to do this. Because you have to find freedom. Because in God's will and design and sovereignty, his people and his creation are meant to be free. And this is not freedom where they are. And freedom oftentimes in the way that we find ourselves living as we're steeped and kind of overwhelmed with. That's not to minimize or to like speak negatively of all of us. It's just to say that's the reality. We live in these waters and so often we think we are free, but we're not. And so the plagues 
come into this narrative. What's happening with the Bible project, what we know is that Yahweh being revealed and given to all people is really important. Try to fix that crackling of rubbing against my face. And in the, that thrust, it kind of peaks at the plagues, okay? So Elohim is known, but Yahweh's name is to be truly known. So to know God's name is to know his character and his being and his essence. And so we, we do not uh, join in, uh, we don't take away from this that then our task is to make God known and famous in a sense that I think we oftentimes kind of uh, want to give it over to. We'll hear that phrase a lot. It's like our task is to make God famous. What we see in the plagues is the Israelites were not making God known. God was making God known by his acts and his intervention into the world. But there is a real participation from Moses. And we participate and step into that as well. But as you do that, as you understand that how God is known is by a revelation of his character, it is not our popularity or the size of, of all of these things that we may participate in, but it is a way in which we live in alignment with that character. I believe that what God intends is that for us here today to step in and to continue this God being revealed and known is that we live in such a way that there is a traffic between us and heaven. That here on this earth, the kingdom can be revealed as it is in heaven, as we participate in what God is already doing, and our life reveals and like, uh, displays the character and the nature of God. This is how God is revealed in the plagues. His character and his nature in all of the Exodus is being revealed what makes him known. You can't know someone unless you know their character. You can know their name, but to actually truly know someone is to be intimately connected to them. And so God's character is being revealed. Now, if we're honest, we will find that there is an essence of the plague that puts sort of maybe some, uh, what character of God is being revealed here, right? If you don't feel that kind of, uh, then I think that maybe in the plagues, there's a little element of just sort of reading over it and making this sort of a religious or like sort of spiritual, oh, that's all it was, right? Like this is hard stuff to think about God doing these types of things. Two things that I want to say about his character that I think we need to hold above all of that. As we acknowledge the difficulty of sort of seeing God revealed in this way, what, what it is showing above and over everything else is that God is a God that says enough is enough. He's a God that will not stand idly by and watch wickedness and evil prevail. And for us as a people, I think that challenges us. That though we may want to uh, stand in what I believe is a 100% true statement that God is love and love alone, we must accept the full mosaic of God's character and his in his being and understand that that love sometimes does certain things that aren't, aren't always easy for us to submit to. And that's hard for us sometimes. And it's hard for me. I would rather just talk about Jesus saving the world and not coming to condemn the world and just live right there. But how? What does that look like? It looks like a God that will not stand idly by when evil is at hand. 
is a God that will contradict evil and will confront evil. And we, as Kyle has said the last two Sundays, have to be people that follow Jesus, that give space for confrontation and conviction. That is the task and the role of the church is to live into that. That's what we talked about in Galatians, that we would live in such a way that our lives and our story and our narrative as we participate in this greater narrative convicts us and allows the Holy Spirit to convict us and convicts a wanting and needing world around us. We have to present an alternative way of being and existing. And so this is what is happening. The other thing I want to say is that God is a God that uses the ways, means, and cultural norms of the space and time that he enters into to speak to those people in those norms and times. And then he flips it on its head and makes it better than or further than they could have dreamt or imagined. And he still wants to do that with us today. He wants to enter into our story, our space, our time, and he wants to use the cultural norms and our understanding of the world to speak to us and to minister to us and to reach us and encounter us, and then he's going to take that and he's going to twist it. And as we dive in and continue to go through the plagues, that you'll see how this plays out. And so quickly, you can sermon. We're trying to preach the plagues as a whole, which is a whole bunch of chapters. We had to pick a passage to read, and I will touch it quickly at the end just to give like uh, some real examples of everything that I'm running on and on about now. So this is all connected. It's all about the plagues. It's not your typical, we're going to go through 10 verses, which you guys know that's not my typical, and it's pretty normal for me to be 20 minutes in and just be finishing the intro anyway, so this isn't that odd for me. Brueggemann calls this, the, what we're attempting to do this morning as we look at the plague specifically. Uh, Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, theologian, and he calls it a Passover or baptized imagination. You begin to see the exodus in such a way that your mind is shifted, not that you're so caught up in the information and the details of it, but that your mind is caught up into being able to open up a window to see an alternative reality that is capable of existing and that is more true than the reality you live in. And so that's what I hope that as we kind of walk through the exodus, and really every sermon should do that for us, that we should be able to see as we drill down into the text a world and a reality that is possible for us to exist, and we should be captivated by it such in a way that we are moved to see Jesus more beautiful, to see Yahweh more beautiful this morning in a way that compels us to change and alter the way we live and interact with the reality around us. So how we're going to do that is I'm going to go through some more information in the plagues quickly, and then I'm going to use the passage we read to kind of uh, give some details on those plagues, and then I think from that we can move into something to walk away with tangibly and then we'll come to the table as we always do and we'll receive from communion and understand what it is that God's doing here among us. So as we look at the plagues let us uh, kind of center ourselves and, and humble ourselves in such a way that we can see what the Lord has for us. To reiterate, the primary plagues is to know that Yahweh is God. It's going to be mentioned seven times as I said and so you've got to be paying attention that beyond these acts themselves what is being revealed is that God is a God that is freeing the oppressed and that brings liberation. And the character and nature of that God that we see in Exodus does not change. He still is a God that longs to bring freedom and liberation. And so in many ways, this is a liberation text. But I do not think that it is the liberation that we should focus all of our attention on, but the, the way that the liberation reveals the character and the nature of God. That is the thrust of the plagues. That it's moving us towards seeing that this is who God is and that this is who God will always be. 
And it will be the way he functions and operates with us, is that he brings freedom to his people and to his creation. Understand that beyond these acts, what you also see is that God is a God that brings down evil, that he will not stand idly by. And what you see here is not a judgment on a group of people because they made a few mistakes. This is not God's judgment because Pharaoh slipped up one time and sort of did a bad thing that just back in the back, you know, there's that spot in your history and now plagues. No. What is happening here is this is a story about like the epitome of evil and wickedness and that God is a God that will not see that go on and continue and exist. And so beyond these, you see that God is judging the depths and the, like, the, just the ultimate evil of humanity, of where it goes when you live outside of the intention and the design that he has. So as you read through the stories... These plagues then, a word on that, by the way, it's, you'd be right to understand that there's not really ten plagues in the way we understand plagues. There's really only one plague. That's the boils, plague number five, uh, in the sense of the way we would talk about a plague in our modern English language. The Hebrew word that we're borrowing from here is to strike down or to touch intensely and with purpose. And I like understanding it that way because I think it shows us that this is God's involvement and connection. To be involved and to touch and to be connected to humanity and to not stand idly by. So in these plagues, you see that God is making this judgment. And they're structured in a unique way. It is, there's three, 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 one is the way the plagues go. There's three triads. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then as that culminates and kind of climaxes, you get this separate tenth event in the Passover. And it stands on its own on purpose, not just in the number of chapters, but in its structure and its language and all of that. But in this structure, as you see these triads working together, not only do they line up, so if you think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, they line vertically in these columns. Then they line up horizontally. So one, four, seven, you get the idea, two, five, eight. Beyond being fascinating and hoping, hopefully opening your eyes to see that scripture is wild and it's beautiful and it's intelligent and it's complex, is also that this is worship language and this is poetic language that is hearkening back to creation. So immediately you should see that there are all of these creation overlaps happening between the ten plagues and what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. What you're reading in Exodus, if this is liturgical, poetic language that we think is formed for the people of God to be reminded and to recall and to retell who God is, they would also have Genesis 1 and 2 memorized. And they would know and they would recognize all of this language that is happening. And so there's all of these ways that it is screaming creation symbolism and verbiage and tone and direction in the patterns themselves. Genesis 1 and 2 are created in this way. There's two triads in each one. And then there's a culminating event that sits out on its own that's very different. And it's poetic and it's liturgical and it structures the same way. And so the rhythms and the cadence of it is the same. So the people of God are going, oh, this is creation language. This is creation imagery as we walk through the plagues. But it's not a creation story as much as it is a decreation story. The, pl the ten plagues are this moment where you actually see a walking back of decreation. So how does this work? What do I mean by this? Take plague two, the frogs. 
They're amphibians. This is like you might ask yourself, why frogs? Well, what's the importance of frogs? Well, on day three of creation, said that there would be teeming in the waters, all teeming things. They would swim. The swimming things would swim in the waters, and it would be full of it. When the frogs are put on a plague, what it is said to them is that the frogs will be teeming onto the land out of the Nile. In creation, the whole point of creation, if you can understand anything else, it's not a history lesson, it's not a science lesson, it is to understand that God, Elohim, is a God that puts boundaries in place and sets things in their right moment in time. It says, you go here, you go here, you go here, this is your role, this is your task, and this is where you belong. By the way, that's why there's uh, some deep meaning when we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's another sermon, but just think about that. God is saying you have boundary lines and places that you belong. And when you step out of those, that is a disordering or a decreation act. And so frogs are amphibious. They team out of the water onto the land. It is the breaking down of these lines between what was supposed to be land animals and water animals. It's not to say frogs are evil and bad. That's snakes. We all know that. But frogs are good. They're cute. They're cuddly. It's... Poetic imagery of saying there is a decreation act that is happening here. The breakdown, there's boundary lines that are being deconstructed. There is something that is happening here that was not supposed to happen, and the order and the structure that God set in place is being broken. And this is bad, 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 bad. Not good. Another one is the flies. Genesis' command is for humanity to go and to fill and multiply the earth. Remember Joseph, they filled and they multiplied. They were fruitful and they multiplied. Creation imagery, good. Flies are a representation of death. Where do you see flies swarming? Rotten food, excrement, dead things. Flies are swarming where there is death. So when the flies are released to swarm and to fill and to multiply, which is the exact same language as in Genesis given to humanity, but now flies are doing it, it is a death image. That there is something that has been gone terribly wrong in creation. And now death is filling and multiplying the land. Gnats, from dust to dust, they come up out of the dust. And so we know that dust is a symbolism of creation. And it's also a symbolism of mortality for the Hebrew people in Old Testament. We, in Lent, talk about from dust we came and from dust we will return. Now, instead of dust being creation and humanity... It's gnats swarming out, coming out, taking over. So it's all death. It's decreation. And even the movement of the plagues. Plague one starts at the Nile. There's the Egyptian god of the Nile, which is the biggest god in Egypt. So obviously this is a direct affront to who the god of Egypt is. The Nile is also their agricultural source, their life source, their political source, their financial source. The Nile's a really big deal. So God coming and turning the Nile to blood him kind of, it's like a, a big God flex, if you will. Like he's saying, like, I'm, no, I rule over all this. But also, it's creation image. Because at the very end of creation in Genesis 2, what is flowing by the goodness of God in Eden is rivers and waterheads. And they're flowing. And it's saying, this is where creation was supposed to be. And so you start all the way at the end of creation in plague one. And you begin to see that it's a decreation that will flow. And then one through ten, there's this language that's happening as I pointed out already and will continue to point out. And then you get all the way to the end and you get to the third triad, which was where ours was from today, Plague 7, the hailstorm. 
And in this third triad, what you begin to see is there's actually this like big, wild language. And it gets really extreme and ultimate. And there's no hailstorm like a hailstorm you've ever seen. And again, this is a direct, the language being used here is a direct assault or confrontation to the language of the Egyptian empire. Like they're taking this language and saying like, you think you are all of history, but our God is the God of history and time. Our God is the one that will do more than you could imagine, see, dream of, wonder, fear, nightmare, all of it. And he's taking it. In, in, in our plague seven of the hail, we read that it would destroy the livestock, the land, but it also destroyed all the vegetation. And so you start to zoom in. Day five, day three. Day three is destroyed, right? The, the land. And there's this ticking in. And then plague eight will be uh, all the language there is going to directly be connected to day two of creation. And then plague nine, where we kind of penultimate or ultimate, depending on what language you want to use or how you want to see it. Plague nine is the end of all creation. It's all been undone. Why? Because in Genesis one, in the beginning there was the word. Or in the beginning was God, and He spoke, and light came into existence. And in the end of plague nine, Yahweh speaks darkness into existence. And so all has been unraveled. All has been undone. And we see this happening. And, and so this decreation also is an interplay that is happening with what we see with Pharaoh. And we need to address that for just a second. It's Pharaoh's heart being hardened, right? We see Pharaoh's heart is hard. And then we see God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. And this is another one of those moments where we wrestle with the character of God. What does this mean that he would harden someone's heart? Like, and we've heard different teachings and different theologies have kind of like taken hold of these statements in different ways. But if you see what's happening in the plagues, 1 through 10, and this turning over to decreation and this interplay with what's going on with Pharaoh in there, what you see is it's God's turning over to the people's desires and their whims and, their, and their, what their own actions and doings are. And he's saying, you can have it. You want the empire? Let me show you what the empire and what power and evil does. Is it decreates all that I intended to exist and to be good and beautiful. If you want to reject my grace and my goodness, it, it, then fine, you can reject it. And he turns them over to what they want themselves. He allows them to turn in on themselves. And it shows at like a hyperspeed or like a lightning speed, if you will, kind of intense, magnified, exponential working out of what happens when you give yourselves over to this. And this is the judgment of the ten plagues and this is the judgment of Pharaoh. That as you do this, this is what will happen. And it stands as and gives a warning sign to the people of God that if you want power, influence, comfort, you can have it. God will be good to give it to you. But no, this is the end result. If you want to participate and align yourself with the empire, God will be good to let you have it. He will give you over to it. But no, this is what it looks like. It is a complete deordering and destructuring of what God intended to set forth. And so the call of the faithful believer then is to participate with God and continuing to live within the bounds and the structures and the guides that God has placed in and around us. And to live into that in a way that allows his kingdom and his creation to flourish and to exist in the way that God intended it to. And we participate with him in that. And we, we stand alongside of that and we invite others into it as we say, yeah, 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 this is different. We live in such a way that is unique to what is happening around us because we know that's what God intends. And he longs for us to do this. We talked about how this passage that we read does this. 
and how we see it happening and how we see what God is doing is this thing where he is decreating. And what I want us to kind of take away from that and be able to hold on to is trusting that God intends to, to participate with us. Trusting that God intends to take our lives and function and operate in such a way that we experience that freedom and that release from oppression, that release from bondage that we so often find ourselves in. And that he longs to take us and to allow us to operate in life as he intended and in that meaning that that is a life of joy, a life of true freedom, the ability to, to deny what we think we need, but to live and to submit ourselves instead to what God is telling us that we need. This is what's happening in the plagues. And so God's people stand in this. And they're allowed to kind of see it. And the powers at hand see who God is. And God's name, Yahweh, is then revealed to all around. And if it is true of the Israelites and the Egyptians that they needed this arm twisting, this pushing, this kind of compelling to move out, and I think we would be good to stand here and understand all the beauty of who God is, his character, his nature, and what he's trying to do in and among us and understanding the ark in which we find ourselves on. We would be good to stand and ask this morning, what are the ways that we here this morning are so comfortable with aligning ourselves with the comforts and the power of the empire that we have forgotten who God intended us to be? What are the subtle kind of uh, like hidden ways because the Israelites weren't dumb. They were very aware of the fact that they were in bondage and slavery. But very soon, as Rachel Mason's going to preach so eloquently and beautifully for us, we know that they, they're going to start complaining and say, like, Moses, we were better back there. We want to we wanna go back. Because like, at least there we knew we were going to have food and we had a place to stay and like, we didn't have to walk so much. Like, God, the walking, it's terrible. Their feet are sore. They don't have a place to call home. They've got to pack up. And they, and they literally, if you map it out on a map, like, they just walk in circles for a very, very, very long time. They have to be wildly and maddeningly frustrating. I mean, I'm tired of like, doing circles around like, different things in my own life and with people like... Two months, and I'm like, I'm out. Forty years? Like, of course they want to go back. Of course they want to go back to where things were predictable and there was control and there was a way that maybe there was, they could sneak their way up and they could at least be elevated a little bit. Maybe the next Pharaoh wouldn't be so bad if they could just endure there. Same is true of the people that are writing this in the 5th and 6th century that are constructing this in Babylon. There's a whole bunch of Jews in Babylon that don't want to go back. They're like, we got it good here. We're fed. We're taken care of. We're safe from enemies outside of us. Like, don't you know this is good protection? This is a good life we have? Like, just be grateful for what you have. And I think that is true. If it's not true of you, so be it. But I know that's true of me. As a Western, affluent, someone that is, you know, has most of what I need, it is way too easy for me to align myself with the comforts and the safety of what exists around me and to lose the call and the identity of what God would have me to be. Which if the story of the Exodus is our story, and if the story of the cross 
continues to be the story by which we are supposed to live into, then what we know is it is a story that my identity, my place, my role is to be one who wildly and and dramatically is living wholly outside of what exists around me. And And I give myself to a different way of being and existing and thinking and processing and what successes and goals and all these things that you've heard your whole life if you've been in the church. But it doesn't stop being true. That we are meant to live in a way that we are creating a new society, a new culture. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but like that's what we're supposed to be as a community, as the people of God, as the church on the local level. We are supposed to be a new society, a new culture that exists and lives inside of this world. And we are not detached from it. We are not outside of it. But inside of it, we exist as something that is completely different. And we orient and structure and shape our time together in a different kind of way with one another and with ourselves and our family, our careers. It's not just pastors that have to ask themselves if they need more money or a bigger job and a better like, life. That's the call of a believer. We all ask those questions. We all ask what we're supposed to be doing. We should all be standing honestly before God and before the Lord saying, what do I do with my Sundays? What do I do with my Monday nights? What do I do with these job opportunities that risk and challenge what you would have for me? We submit to it. We give ourselves to it in a different kind of way because what is true of the Exodus and what is true of Jesus in the Gospels is true of us today. God is a God that longs to meet and to be a part and to to get into our space and time and allow us to experience freedom like we've never known before, to walk away from and exist in a different kind of way. And that's always our call. So as the band comes up, we're going to move to our time of communion. And in communion, what we celebrate is this very act, this very movement And I think communion does a lot of things, which it's why it's a mystery, it's why it's beautiful, it's why it's wonderful. It does this thing where it reminds and retells the passion and the story of Jesus. It does this mysterical thing in this like wonderful, miraculous thing where I think God actually in some sort of way has chosen to meet us here, come down and to condescend to us in the elements and to allow us to touch and to hold on to what Jesus has done for us. And I think also that communion does this thing that as we take the bread and the cup and as we ingest it, that it does something in us where it changes us and it moves us and it shapes us and forms us into being something that we cannot be on our own. And it allows us to live into that. And and when we do that, it allows us to then participate in this act of God revealing himself to a wanting and needing world around him. A world that is caught up in the games of the empire and is saying, no, you have a better life. I believe communion allows us to not only open the window to see the alternate reality, but in some sense as we walk up here and as we take the elements, it allows us to actually step through and to live into that alternate reality that the kingdom is providing for us, that God is calling us to. And so as the band plays, I'm going to invite you to come and take the bread and the cup. It's not, I'll do that in a second. It'll be on both sides. We've got gluten-free on this side if you need that. But take the elements, hold on to them, go back to your seats, and I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the taking. But as you come, come boldly in trusting and knowing who the character of God is and come ready and willing to participate in what he would have for us in this world and in and around us. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.